When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Law School of America Native American People From 1778 to 1871, the government tried to resolve its relationship with the various Native tribes by negotiating treaties. These treaties formed agreements between two sovereign nations, stating that Native American people were citizens of their tribe, living within the boundaries of the United States. The treaties were negotiated by the executive branch and ratified by the U.S. Senate. It said that native tribes would give up their rights to hunt and live on huge parcels of land that they had inhabited in exchange for trade goods, yearly cash annuity payments, and assurances that no further demands would be made on them. Most often, part of the land would be reserved exclusively for the tribe's use. Throughout the 1800s, many native tribes gradually lost claim to the lands they had inhabited for centuries through the federal government's Indian removal policy to relocate tribes from the southeast and northwest to west of the Mississippi River. European-American settlers continued to encroach on western lands. Only in 1879, in the Standing Bear Trial, were American Indians recognized as persons in the eyes of the United States government. Judge Elmer Scipio Dundee of Nebraska declared that Indians were people within the meaning of the laws, and they had the rights associated with the writ of habeas corpus. However, Judge Dundee left unsettled the question as to whether Native Americans were guaranteed U.S. citizenship. Although Native Americans were born within the national boundaries of the United States, those on reservations were considered citizens of their own tribes, rather than of the United States. They were denied the right to vote because they were not considered citizens by law and were thus ineligible. Many Native Americans were told they would become citizens if they gave up their tribal affiliations in 1887 under the Dawes Act, which allocated communal lands to individual households and was intended to aid in the assimilation of Native Americans into majority culture. This still did not guarantee their right to vote. In 1924, the remaining Native Americans, estimated at about one-third, became United States citizens through the Indian Citizenship Act. Many Western states, however, continued to restrict Native American ability to vote through property requirements, economic pressures, hiding the polls, and condoning physical violence against those who voted. Since the late 20th century, they have been protected under provisions of the Voting Rights Act as a racial minority, and in some areas, language minority, gaining election materials in their native languages. Alaska Natives the Alaskan Territory did not consider Alaska Natives to be citizens of the United States and so they could not vote. An exception to this rule was that indigenous women were considered citizens if they were married to white men. In 1915, the territorial legislature passed a law that allowed Alaska Natives the right to vote if they gave up their tribal customs and traditions. William Paul, Tlingit, fought for the right of Alaska Natives to vote during the 1920s. Others, like Tilly Paul, Tlingit, and Charlie Jones, Tlingit, were arrested for voting because they were still not considered citizens. Later, Paul would win a court case that set the precedent that Alaska natives were legally allowed to vote. In 1925, a literacy test was passed in Alaska to suppress the votes of Alaska natives. After passage of the Alaska Equal Rights Act of 1945, Alaska natives gained more rights, 
but there was still voter discrimination. When Alaska became a state, the new constitution provided Alaskans with a more lenient literacy test. In 1970, the state legislature ratified a constitutional amendment against state voter literacy tests. The Voting Rights Act of 1965, VRA, modified in 1975, provided additional help for Alaska natives who do not speak English, which affects around 14 census areas. Many villages with large Alaska native populations continue to face difficulties voting. Religious Test In several British North American colonies, before and after the 1776 Declaration of Independence, Jews, Quakers and or Catholics were excluded from the franchise and or from running for elections. The Delaware Constitution of 1776 stated that every person who shall be chosen a member of either house, or appointed to any office or place of trust, before taking his seat, or entering upon the execution of his office, shall, also make and subscribe the following declaration, to wit, I, A, B. Do profess faith in God the Father, and in Jesus Christ his only Son, and in the Holy Ghost, one God, blessed for evermore, and I do acknowledge the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration. This was repealed by Article I, Section 2. Of the 1792 Constitution, no religious test shall be required as a qualification to any office, or public trust, under this state. The 1778 Constitution of the State of South Carolina stated, No person shall be eligible to sit in the House of Representatives unless he be of the Protestant religion. The 1777 Constitution of the State of Georgia, Art. Vi, that the representatives shall be chosen out of the residents in each county, and they shall be of the Protestant religion. With the growth in the number of Baptists in Virginia before the Revolution, who challenged the established Anglican Church, the issues of religious freedom became important to rising leaders such as James Madison. As a young lawyer, he defended Baptist preachers who were not licensed by, and were opposed by, the established state Anglican Church. He carried developing ideas about religious freedom to be incorporated into the Constitutional Convention of the United States. In 1787, Article 1 of the United States Constitution stated that the electors in each state shall have the qualifications requisite for electors of the most numerous branch of the state legislature. More significantly, Article 6 disavowed the religious test requirements of several states, saying, O religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. But, in Maryland, Jewish Americans were excluded from state office until the law requiring candidates to affirm a belief in an afterlife was repealed in 1828. African Americans and Poor Whites At the time of ratification of the Constitution in the late 18th century, most states had property qualifications which restricted the franchise, the exact amount varied by state, but by some estimates, more than half of white men were disenfranchised. Several states granted suffrage to free men of color after the Revolution, including North Carolina. This fact was noted by Justice Benjamin Robbins Curtis dissent in Dred Scott v. Sanford, 1857, as he emphasized that blacks had been considered citizens at the time the Constitution was ratified. Of this there can be no doubt. At the time of the ratification of the Articles of Confederation, all free native-born inhabitants of the states of New Hampshire, Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, and North Carolina, though descended from African slaves, were not only citizens of those states, but such of them as had the other necessary qualifications possessed the franchise of electors, on equal terms with other citizens. In the 1820s, New York State enlarged its franchise to white men by dropping the property qualification, 
but maintained it for free blacks. Now a word from our sponsor, the Law School of America. The Supreme Court of North Carolina had upheld the ability of free African Americans to vote in that state. In 1835, because of fears of the role of free blacks after Nat Turner's slave rebellion of 1831, they were disenfranchised by decision of the North Carolina Constitutional Convention. At the same time, convention delegates relaxed religious and property qualifications for whites, thus expanding the franchise for them. Alabama entered the Union in 1819 with universal white suffrage provided in its Constitution. When the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868 after the Civil War, it granted citizenship to all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to its jurisdiction. In 1869, the 15th Amendment prohibited the government from denying a citizen the right to vote based on that citizen's race, color, or previous condition of servitude. The major effect of these amendments was to enfranchise African-American men, the overwhelming majority of whom were freedmen in the South. After the war, some southern states passed black codes, state laws to restrict the new freedoms of African-Americans. They attempted to control their movement, assembly, working conditions and other civil rights. Some states also prohibited them from voting. The 15th Amendment, one of three ratified after the American Civil War to grant freedmen full rights of citizenship, prevented any state from denying the right to vote to any citizen based on race. This was primarily related to protecting the franchise of freedmen, but it also applied to non-white minorities, such as Mexican-Americans in Texas. The state governments under Reconstruction adopted new state constitutions or amendments designed to protect the ability of freedmen to vote. The white resistance to black suffrage after the war regularly erupted into violence as white groups tried to protect their power. Particularly in the South, in the aftermath of the Civil War whites made efforts to suppress freedmen's voting. In the 1860s, secret vigilante groups such as the Ku Klux Klan, KKK, used violence and intimidation to keep freedmen in a controlled role and re-establish white supremacy. The U.S. military and United States Department of Justice were successfully able to disband the Klan through prosecution and black freedmen registered and voted in high numbers, many of whom were elected to local offices through the 1880s. In the mid-1870s, the insurgencies continued with a rise in more powerful white paramilitary groups, such as the White League, originating in Louisiana in 1874 after a disputed gubernatorial election, and the Red Shirts, originating in Mississippi in 1875 and developing numerous chapters in North and South Carolina, as well as other white line rifle clubs. They operated openly, were more organized than the KKK, and directed their efforts at political goals, to disrupt Republican organizing, turn Republicans out of office, and intimidate or kill blacks to suppress black voting. They worked as the military arm of the Democratic Party. For instance, estimates were that 150 blacks were killed in North Carolina before the 1876 elections. Economic tactics such as eviction from rental housing or termination of employment were also used to suppress the black vote. The federal government withdrew its troops as a result of a national compromise related to the presidency, officially ending Reconstruction and soon afterward the Supreme Court would strike down nearly every law passed through Reconstruction that protected freedmen from racially motivated violence from private actors while also taking a narrow view to the federal government's ability to enforce laws against state actors who perpetrated racially motivated violence. White Democrats regained power in state legislatures across the South by the late 1870s and declined to enforce laws against white supremacist paramilitary groups. African Americans were a majority in three southern states following the Civil War, 
and represented over 40% of the population in four other states and many whites feared and resented the political power exercised by freedmen. After ousting the Republicans, whites worked to restore white supremacy. Although elections were often surrounded by violence, blacks continued to vote and gained many local offices in the late 19th century. In the late 19th century, a populist Republican coalition in several states gained governorships and some congressional seats in 1894. To prevent such a coalition from forming again and reduce election violence, the Democratic Party, dominant in all southern state legislatures, took action to disenfranchise most blacks and many poor whites outright. From 1890 to 1908, ten of the eleven former Confederate states completed political suppression and exclusion of these groups by ratifying new constitutions or amendments which incorporated provisions to make voter registration more difficult. These included such requirements as payment of poll taxes, complicated record-keeping, complicated timing of registration and length of residency in relation to elections, with related record-keeping requirements, felony disenfranchisement focusing on crimes thought to be committed by African Americans, and a literacy test or comprehension test. This was defended openly, on the floor of the Senate, by South Carolina Senator and former Governor Benjamin Tillman. In my state there were 135,000 Negro voters, or Negroes of voting age, and some 90,000 or 95,000 white voters, now, I want to ask you, with a free vote and a fair count, how are you going to beat 135,000 by 95,000? How are you going to do it? You had set us an impossible task. We did not disfranchise the Negroes until 1895. Then we had a constitutional convention convened which took the matter up calmly, deliberately, and avowedly with the purpose of disenfranchising as many of them as we could under the 14th and 15th Amendments. We adopted the educational qualification as the only means left to us, and the Negro is as contented and as prosperous and as well protected in South Carolina today as in any state of the Union south of the Potomac. He is not meddling with politics, for he found that the more he meddled with them the worse off he got. As to his rights, I will not discuss them now. We of the South have never recognized the right of the Negro to govern white men, and we never will, I would to God the last one of them was in Africa and that none of them had ever been brought to our shores. Prospective voters had to prove the ability to read and write the English language to white voter registrars, who in practice applied subjective requirements. Blacks were often denied the right to vote on this basis. Even well-educated blacks were often told they had failed such a test, if in fact, it had been administered. On the other hand, illiterate whites were sometimes allowed to vote through a grandfather clause, which waived literacy requirements if one's grandfather had been a qualified voter before 1866, or had served as a soldier, or was from a foreign country. As most blacks had grandfathers who were slaves before 1866 and could not have fulfilled any of those conditions, they could not use the grandfather clause exemption. Selective enforcement of the poll tax was frequently also used to disqualify black and poor white voters. As a result of these measures, at the turn of the century voter rolls dropped markedly across the South. Most blacks and many poor whites were excluded from the political system for decades. Unable to vote they were also excluded from juries or running for any office. In Alabama, for example, its 1901 constitution restricted the franchise for poor whites as well as blacks. It contained requirements for payment of cumulative poll taxes, completion of literacy tests, and increased residency at state, county and precinct levels, effectively disenfranchising tens of thousands of poor whites as well as most blacks. Historian J. Morgan Cousset found, 
they disfranchised these whites as willingly as they deprived blacks of the vote. By 1941, more whites than blacks in total had been disenfranchised. The Law School of America The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America